0: Let's turn now, friends, to the um, first portion we read. The prophecy of Isaiah. And we'll take for our reference. Verse 17. O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways? And hardened our heart. From thy fear, return for thy servancy, the tribes of thine inheritance, and especially the first part of the verse. O Lord, why hast thou made us to wear from my ways, and hardened our heart? To thy or from thy fear. <clears throat> this uh, prophet Isaiah. He enjoyed many years of as one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. And during his lifetime, the children of Israel were divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom, otherwise known as Israel, based in Samaria, and there was the southern kingdom, otherwise known as Judah, based in and around Jerusalem. And during his lifetime, or at least the, the uh, time he was ministering as a prophet, he served under four kings. He served uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And during that time, he witnessed Much of Israel's ups and downs, blessings from God and God's displeasure upon them. And that included witnessing that northern kingdom, Israel, falling to the Assyrian army in the year 722 BC. And he urged Judah. Not to follow the example of Israel by sinning against God. Now, in the context here, Isaiah is beginning to realize that this was a futile battle. In the long run, time proved that to be a correct assessment. His successor, Jeremiah, he saw God. Handing Judah over, including Jerusalem, including the temple, and all that went with it, to Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army. But meanwhile, uh, Isaiah himself did what we must do in our day and generation. He kept focused on God, despite the apostasy all around him, he kept focused on his God. Now, in verses 7, 8, and 9, he recalls God's covenant mercies to his people, beginning with these words at the beginning of verse 7, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord, something we can do as we reflect upon our own history. We remember the loving kindnesses of God to ourselves. But then follows this tragic reality, second part of, or well, first part of verse 10. They rebelled. They rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Now, my friends, I cannot overemphasize the tragedy for the people of God when they rebel. Against their God and vex his Holy Spirit. I cannot overemphasize that tragedy. But you know, there's a greater tragedy than that. And there was a greater tragedy than that here. Look at the second part of verse 10. Therefore, therefore, he was turned to be their enemy and he fought. Against them. Now, there, my friends, is the real tragedy. And there is no greater tragedy in human history than when the living God fights against a people, an Asian, an individual, a church for that matter. Because that's a fight, my friends. No people, no nation, no individual, no church can possibly win. And that's why God introduced to Israel a very special sacrifice. As you know, Israel uh, had uh, multitudes of sacrifices of different types and for different purposes. But there was one very special sacrifice, and it was called a propitiating sacrifice. That's not a word we use every day. And the meaning of the word and the meaning of the sacrifice was to turn God's anger away from the people, a propitiating sacrifice. And you should remember that word, and you should remember the meaning of it. Because when God's anger is turned away, from an individual, from a people, from a community, from a church. Peace is established. It's not something that happens arbitrarily. The result of it is we come to know the peace of God. And when God's anger is turned away from yourself through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what will happen in your life. Because Jesus Christ Is the propitiation for our sins. And the moment you put your trust in Jesus, this is what will happen in the very depths of your being. You will come to know the peace that passes all understanding. Now, my friends, the time has come for us as a church, as a nation, as a community. To seek out this propitiation for ourselves and you. It is beyond question that God has a controversy with us. And it's equally beyond question that we have collectively, we cannot point a finger at anyone in this regard, we have collectively rebelled, and vexed the Holy Spirit of God. We have brought dark days upon ourselves, our nation, and now our community. We have sown the wind, and we must reap the whirlwind. And that whirlwind, my friends, is about to descend upon us as a community. Yesterday, our town hall hosted what was advertised as a family day aimed primarily at children, organized by the so-called Heb Pride. Came with Bouncy Castle stalls. And all the accoutrements you would find for family entertainment. And the event concluded last night with an adults only masked ball in the Caperfey Hotel. Has our town lost its mind? Where's the Christian voice amongst the counsellors of our town and our island? Why are we provoking God in this way? We cannot possibly escape unscathed, my friends. Israel didn't. Judah didn't. And we won't. We should weep. We should weep this day for the tragedy that has come upon us and upon our children. Let's turn to our text. O oh Lord, why hast thou made us to err from my ways and hardened? Our heart for my fear. This is one of those verses in the Bible that is very easy to misunderstand. And if we misunderstand it, we'll end up blaming God for our sin. But you see, Isaiah's not suggesting that people erred because God hardened their hearts. That would be to misunderstand what this text is teaching us. We know from biblical history that similar situations to this occurred on more than one time, and particularly in Egypt with Pharaoh. When Moses went in to see the Pharaoh to demand the release and liberty of the children of Israel from their slavery, We read in Exodus 7, verse 13, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, what does that mean? Could Pharaoh turn around and blame God for what he was doing or what he wasn't doing? Of course he couldn't. Verses like this must be understood in the light of James 1, verse 13. God never tempts anyone to sin. However, should God withdraw his sovereign providential influence from individuals, from a community, from a nation, or from a church? Individuals will sin and must sin. Not only that they will sin, but they must sin. Because that, my friends, is the natural inclination of the human heart. The natural inclination of every human heart. And if you don't live your life, flat-out sinning, it is only because of the sovereign, providential influence of God over your heart and over your mind and over your life. Because left to your own devices, you would indulge in non-stop sinning. Now, that was the case with Pharaoh. God didn't do anything to harden Pharaoh's heart. He simply withdrew his sovereign providential influence, and Pharaoh responded with natural inclinations. And he said to Moses, I will not let them go. And that's what happened to these Hebrew people, the contemporaries of Isaiah. But I want you to notice carefully how this developed. It is only when God saw the persistent sinful ways of Judah that God then reacted. So look at verse 10 again and notice the order. They rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and fought against them. And the more they rebelled, the more God withdrew his sovereign providential influence over their lives. Now, some people call this common grace. It's not a phrase I'm very comfortable with, but whatever label you give it, It is plain from the teaching of the Bible. It is plain from human history that without God's restraining power and influence, sinful conduct will wax worse and worse. That's how the ancient world earned its reputation as well as its condemnation. Listen to these words. They are very familiar to most of you from Genesis chapter 6. Every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was evil continually. This was the natural inclination of the mind, sinning continually. So as Israel in the northern kingdom and later Judah in the southern kingdom persisted in their sin... God withdrew more and more and more his providential influence. But you know, friends, that never creates a vacuum. It never creates a vacuum. Because as the restraint is removed from human conduct, the humans, men and women, they err increasingly. Their hearts become increasingly hard towards God, and they manufacture sin as natural as they breathe. And that's what this prophet means, O Lord, why hast Thou made us to err from Thy ways, and hardened our heart from Thy fear? Our friends, this must be tied in or the New Testament text we read on the same subject in Romans chapter 1. And there God details for us the vilest practices of hearts hardened under divine judgment. And it begins in this way by people, Romans 1 verse 23, changing the glory of the uncorruptible God. As always how it begins, by changing the glory of the uncorruptible God. And it doesn't matter what it's changed to. It could be changed to anything or anyone. The significant point is this, my friends. God is utterly intolerant of anyone interfering with his glory. My glory I will not give to another. That's a warning to the whole world. And the result of this, they seriously erred in their ways and hardened their hearts. And here's how that is stated for us in Romans 1 verse 24. God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. And God gave this a name. Vile affections vile affections. Most of you are familiar with this type of sin, the type of sin that emerged in all of this in Romans 1 verse 26. In intimate relationships between men and women, we read that they change the natural use into that which is against nature. Further details I don't have to give you. You know what this means. From Genesis to Revelation, this particular type of sin is portrayed for us as obnoxious and vile in the eyes of God. There's one other thing that we should take into account when we think about this, and we should be thinking about this these days, in the light of what took place in our town yesterday. We should take into consideration the contagious nature of this sin when it is left without divine restraint, the contagious Nature of it. Most of us are familiar with the story on the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah due to this particular sin. And Jesus confirms to us, and whenever Jesus comments on incidents that took place in the Old Testament era, we should sit up and listen. And he comments on that particular situation. By telling us this was a real situation, and these were real people that died in Sodom and Gomorrah. You'll find the comment in Luke chapter 17. The day Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. These are the words that came from the lips of Jesus Christ, the man who couldn't lie. But it wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah, was it? And here's where the contagious nature of it comes in. It had spread much further than that. Because Jude, our Lord's half-brother, if you like, he tells us in verse 7 of his letter, Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, and the cities about them in like manner. It spread like a disease. Yet, this is the sin our town helped to celebrate yesterday. Our town hall was used for the occasion. Our largest hotel was used for the event. It is beyond belief, my friends that this could occur in what was only the other day the bastion of Presbyterianism, beyond belief. So what happened to a people that once filled that town hall in defense of the Sabbath day? And I'm sure many of you older folk here remember that well. Packed into the town hall to prevent that ferry running on the Sabbath. What happened to those people? Are Christians in our town no content with merely tutting at all of this? There should be. An avalanche of mail directed at the council and directed at the Copperfield Hotel, protesting these events. An avalanche of mail, not just from the Christian community, but from every decent citizen in our town and in our island. And should we leave this to a shrugging of the soldier's shoulders attitude? we'd best remember what the second part of verse 10 of this chapter says. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and fought against them. So let's plead with Isaiah in the second part of our text. Return for thy servant's sake, tribes of thine inheritance. Pray, my friends, pray that this will awaken our town. And awaken our island communities to the danger of God's wrath descending upon us. Meanwhile, let's consider the prophet Isaiah's hope for the remnant of God's people in the midst of their apostasy before God. In verse 9 we read, in all their affliction he was afflicted. I was referring, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now beyond any physical affliction, and he has been for 2,000 years. He did endure, as you know, 33 years of suffering and affliction. But now on his heavenly throne, he is untouchable as far as his enemies are concerned. Yet he isn't even today Indifferent to our afflictions, to the afflictions of his people. We're taught in Hebrews chapter 4 in the New Testament, we do not have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He's very much aware of the pain in the heart of his people. Now, our hope as Christians isn't merely in what Jesus endured, but in what caused the worst of his afflictions. There is no question that Jesus was afflicted more than anyone that ever lived on this earth. And much of that was borne in silence by him for the first 30 years. And who can possibly measure the afflictions of God's Holy Son living? in a sinful world. But then during his last three years on earth, men and devils poured their fury upon him, and it all reached its climax with the sheer injustice of his mock trial and the cruelty of his execution on the cross of Calvary. However, that was a drop beside an ocean in comparison with his Real afflictions. His real afflictions. You see, the mocking and the scourging and the thorns and the nails, they fail to bring one single cry of protest from his holy lips. Not a cry. Whereas, When the fury of divine justice erupted upon him, being the penalty upon the sin which he bore, my sin and your sin, if you're a believer here this Sabbath morning, that did bring a response. That did bring a cry from his holy lips, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, We endured this furnace of affliction in Gethsemane and on the cross of Calvary. And it's to that horrendous experience that we must now turn to find our own hope and comfort and consolation and encouragement. And we discover ourselves in situations similar to Isaiah in a sense that we are mourning over the spiritual state of our island communities. We are witnessing the apostasy of the church in so many instances throughout our land and throughout our Western world. When the king David of the Old Testament saw the appalling state of Israel, I want you to notice what he did uh, this is in First Samuel chapter thirty. He was greatly distressed. He looked around him at the conduct of the people so favored by God for so long. He was greatly distressed, but he encouraged himself in the Lord. He encouraged himself. In the Lord. And that's our encouragement, my friends. It's our only encouragement. In the Lord. So as we witness Satan's attack on the moral fabric of our town and our community, let's seek that encouragement. Let's seek that consolation. Let's seek that hope in the Lord. And we will find that most of all at Gethsemane and at the cross of Calvary. Now, if we understand Gethsemane and the cross of right, we will see two things that will help us enormously. Number one, we will see the accomplishment of our forgiveness. And we will see that very clearly. And the second thing, we will see the establishing of our peace with God. So in the context of this chapter, we have a brief commentary on Gethsemane and Calvary, O Lord's furnace of affliction. Now, similar to much of the Old Testament messianic prophecy and predictions, this commentary is uh, shrouded in, in something of, of symbolism and some symbolic language. And it begins with the Opening words of this chapter, a question. Who is this, this, is in verse one. Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra? Now you may think, well, what encouragement is in that for us? Well, obscure as it may sound, my friends, here's the hope of God's people in all ages. In all ages, you see Bosra, keep keep in mind, this is all symbolic and typology. Bosra belongs to the same category as Egypt, Gath, Babylon, and Golgotha. In other words, these all provoked the, the anger and ire of God. There were places and communities opposed to God. Now Bosra was in Edom. Edom was the territory of Esau and the descendants, of course, of Esau. Now remember God's condemnation of Esau. Jacob have I loved; Esau have I hated. Now this was the real danger for the Lord's people. Anybody and uh, related or are associated with Bosra and Edom, they would be opposed to all of God's people. Yet here where Messiah is seen emerging from. And you'll notice not merely from Edom, but from the capital of Edom, Bosra. In other words, The Lord Jesus Christ had to go into the heart of enemy territory to perfect our salvation and to establish peace between us and God. And that's why this is the hope of God's people in all ages. So whilst in the darkest corners, of enemy territory, and that's where we see him in Gethsemane on the cross of Calvary, he did not escape unscathed. Look again at our text in verse one. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra? The suggested color here is red because the word dyed And the uh, term red, they are very associated in this. And so we read by this very prophet in the commentary on Gethsemane and Calvary. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. But you know, in my view, the most important words in Isaiah 53 are these. It pleased the Lord to bruise. It's not commenting on what men did. It's not commenting on what devils did. It pleased the Lord to bruise. The New Testament sheds sheds light on this for us. 1 John chapter 4. God sent his son to be the propitiation, there's that word again, to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the word, my friends, wherein we find our hope these days for so offending our God. Because the only way that God's anger can be turned away from us in our town and in our island communities in the light of yesterday's disgraceful conduct is through pleading the merits of the propitiating sacrifice offered by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Remember the mercy seat in the temple, in the tabernacle in the temple. I'm just going to, I haven't got time to develop this, But I'm going to give you a a broad outline of of something very important in connection with this. Those of you who are familiar with with Old Testament history, you know about the, the tabernacle and the temple. And how in both places there was this room, God's room, the Holy of Holies it was called. And inside that room, you would find the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, there were the tablets upon which were written the Ten Commandments. Now, these commandments we should think of as the broken law of God. It's not the stones themselves we're talking about here. It's the actual law. It was the broken law of God. And when God's law is broken... It has a peculiar message to give and a peculiar warning. Condemnation and curse. That's the only message from a broken law. Condemnation and curse. That's why the mercy seat is so important. Because the mercy seat, if you imagine, the broken law there, the mercy seat on top of the broken law, as if it were quelling, The cry of condemnation. But there's more than that. Because on top of the mercy seat, there's the sprinkled blood of atonement. The word mercy seat and the word propitiation are the same, they come from the same source. That's what secured forgiveness. For these Old Testament Hebrew people, so as we stand this Sabbath morning, in the shame of our collective guilt over yesterday's display of vulgarity, we need to mourn, my friends, over our fall from grace. We need to beg God to apply that propitiating sacrifice of Calvary to our individual and collective guilt. Should we, refa- should we fail to repent of this offense in God's eyes, oh, we will truly reap the whirlwind. We will truly reap the whirlwind. But we are so thankful for the encouragements of God's word. Nehemiah reminds us that our God is a God that is ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger. And of great kindness. God has shown all that to this community again and again and again over many, many generations. So let me close with two things for you to do. Two things. First of all, plead. Plead. Be a beggar at the footstool of Jesus Christ. Plead with him in prayer for the merits of his propitiating sacrifice at Calvary to be applied to us anew. So that we as Christians and as a community can say with this very prophet who recorded words in chapter 12, verse 1. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger has turned away. Lead my friends. Pray earnestly and pray urgently for the propitiating sacrifice of Calvary to be applied to us. The second thing I want you to do, and it's a practical thing, tomorrow morning, put pen to paper, every one of you, young people and older people, members and adherents, put pen to paper. And write to both the council, not to the convener, but write to the chief executive, write to the convener, and write to the manager of the Caber Fay Hotel, protesting the use of those properties for this type of conduct in our midst. And who knows? Maybe God will turn from his anger. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, do be merciful and gracious to us. We cannot see why we have so offended thee. We have so grieved thine Holy Spirit. But for thine own glory's sake, and for the sake of the remnant of thy people throughout these island communities, visit us in a day of thy power. In wrath, remember mercy. Cover our sin and guilt with the precious blood of the Lamb of God, in whose name we plead this morning. Amen.